Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Who's Your Data podcast. Today we chat with Josh Lamar, who after many years of design research at Microsoft now heads Amplinate, a design firm that fast tracks domestic and international product growth, helping tech companies save millions by building the right product for the right audience in the right markets. We discuss LGBT representation in tech, what it means to be inclusive when designing software products by being cognizant of cultural and global differences. We also discuss the type of data that they use, the difference between quantitative and qualitative data, and how they complement each other in this field. Josh gives us tips on how to implement inclusive design in our product management processes, as well as what he's excited for in the future of design research. So let's get to the interview. Josh, welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. So Josh, can you tell us a little bit about your company, Amplinate, and uh, how you got to where you are with it? Yeah, so uh, Amplinate was founded about three years ago, and it really came out of starting as a, as a freelancer myself. I had been at Microsoft for many years before, and I really just wanted to start doing more uh, international and cross-cultural research. And as a freelancer, I, I could do some of that, but then we started getting more projects. So I just started hiring more people and, and suddenly it was a very organic process of, of creating the company. Um, so we're about 25 people now and we have employees in five continents around the world. We have a, an office, a, a large office in Brazil and uh, another big group of people in the USA, but we also have people in Europe, Africa, and Asia. Wow, you really are all over the world. Yes, yes. And I, it, I think for me, it's, it's about walking the walk when it comes to being inclusive and diverse, because we're doing research with uh, countries all over the world, which is really what I wanted to do, because it, it's the most interesting for me. So Josh, we connected over LGBT representation in tech. And with National Coming Out Day recently behind us, can you share a little bit about your experiences about being gay in tech and how that's shaped or influenced your approach to work? Yeah, I definitely um, feel that being gay in tech has been something that has changed and evolved for myself over, over the years. Um, I've been working in the tech industry for almost 20 years now. Initially, when I kind of started working just out of grad school, um, I was out kind of like to my you know, friends and family. I was out to people at work that I was you know, close to, but I wasn't like screaming out. Um, and it was always something that I just kind of held like to myself. But I noticed over time that there would be a lot of like all hands meetings where someone is like using the example of talking about their wife and like, that's completely okay. But if I were to you know, talk about my boyfriend then or husband, all of a sudden it just kind of felt awkward. And so I, I felt like it was kind of almost like a, a being in the closet again, even though I was still kind of out. And so it was just, it was difficult because I was never really appreciated for my gayness. And that was never really something that, that helped me do my job. I was good at my job because I was good at being a researcher, but that had nothing to do with my perspective as a, as a gay person either. So I think that over time, that's really been changing and shifting for me because 
as we have kind of moved into the, the last few years, and there have been a lot more conversations in the industry uh, about trans and non-binary people and how that impacts their lives at work. And all of a sudden it's back in the, in the forefront of the spotlight again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of why coming back and revisiting what is it about our perspectives that are different and how can we actually starting, start to create more inclusive experiences online? Yeah, I think you make an excellent point, and it's something that I've experienced too, that when you can only bring part of yourself to the work that you do, then you are not bringing, you know, your 100%, everything that you have, your entire perspective. And by allowing you to be 100% yourself and bring all of you to the work, you, you are able to tap into more creativity, to more resources, and to do your job better. Yeah, the this idea of being your true self or uh, authenticity is just so so important in the the gay coming of age. There's a a book that I read that my my therapist had recommended called The Velvet Rage, and it's about how as we're growing up as uh, gay males, and it's specific to the the gay male experience because it's a psychologist writing about the gay male experience from all of the the gay males he'd been working with. We end up growing up and having this kind of fake self that gets validated. The the straight self we pretend uh, exists in the world and that's the one that gets validated. So we end up with a lot of self-hatred and anger and rage about the situation because we're never really validated for who we are. And as we grow as individuals, we start to become more validated for our gayness and we can like let that self-hatred kind of flow and go away from our lives. Um, and it's a, it's a process of self-actualization that, you know, takes a really long time. Yeah. I, it, it takes a very long time to let that seep from you and to be comfortable with who you are. And in that vein, you mentioned that you do work around uh, inclusivity that's really the, the thing that I wanted to talk to you about today is doing product design for inclusivity. So can you uh, talk a little bit about your background? What is user experience? What do you do with product design and how does that relate to uh, software products and the people that use them? Yeah, I mean, all of this is kind of wrapped up in the same thing because as I kind of actualized as a person, I was also like growing and learning as a uh, UX professional as well at the same time. In a nutshell, I'd say that the user experience is about really understanding uh, this kind of threefold way of people, problems, and solutions. So it's who is your target audience? What can you know about them? Their hopes, their dreams, their desires, what are they trying to do? And most importantly, what is the most important problem that they have? They might have lots of problems that you can solve through technology, but what is that most important problem? And once you select that problem, how can you design a solution that's actually going to help them to solve that problem in the best and most efficient way possible? And I might add also better than the competitors uh, as well. There's always this kind of angle. And so we can really look at the broad experience of product design from a perspective of people, problem, and solution. And the role of user experience is to kind of understand each step along the way. And then as a researcher, it's my job to ensure that we are collecting the data that makes sense to inform the strategy of what the product should really be doing and what it should be doing different. How do you pivot that design to make it inclusive to 
historically excluded groups of people. It's, it's so interesting because the process is exactly the same. It's just a different focus on the audience. And so in terms of like what I was always taught was get a broad sample of people from, you know, all different, like all, all, all the differences you can possibly get. And so if you're doing a usability study of 10 people, then, you know, just get a broad sample like age and gender and background and race, ethnicity, and, you know, you're going to get a broad sample. And so you, theoretically, you're getting the whole bell curve by getting this broad sample of people. And then the problem with that is that if there's a... A problem that's that's really important. Well, it's good and bad, right? If you see a problem because you know eight out of ten people have difficulty with something, and they're this big broad spectrum of people, then it's a big problem that you should solve. But if one of those per people is queer and it excludes them or makes them feel like the experience is just not for them, it might come up. But then you would say, oh, but that's just one person. And so it's really about a shift in focus to say, okay, well, why don't we? listen to that person's uh, lived experience and say that that experience matters. And if someone is feeling excluded by this experience, then we should actually dig into that and learn more about why. And that's where you would do another follow-up study just with that particular audience. Because once you start digging in to, for example, the queer community and how the queer experiences are uh, interacting with your product experiences, all of a sudden you're going to learn a lot more. And that's how we start to create more inclusive products. So it's interesting that you say that. So you are looking, the data that you're looking at, it's not enough to sort of get a representative random sample of, of the population because they, certain groups are underrepresented in that. And so you would not see the specific issues that pertain to them. They may just come up as sort of anomalies and yeah it's it's like the outlier yes and so what you're saying is you have to you have to be cognizant of those anomalies and actually dig in and see is this anomaly something that is actually quite standard in that community or is it really just an outlier by chance exactly and i think and i'm, I'm talking very specifically about qualitative data here because in a qualitative sample we're working with a really small n um, typically in the you know eight to twelve range, which means that you're really not getting enough of a signal on anything except for anything that's a really big signal, and so that's where it's really important to kind of listen to the things that come up. But from a quantitative perspective, yeah, absolutely. Like you, it would just show up as an outlier, and you would be like, okay, well, this one person like is an outlier to the rest of the experience. But when you're left because you're looking at the whole bell curve. And then when you really focus in on just a piece of it, maybe the, the tail end or the, the, you know, one of the, one of the tails of the, the bell curve, all of a sudden you're going to learn a lot more in a different way. Now that scoping, it means that you can only talk about that particular group and you can't really say about the whole, but that's not the point. The point is about understanding the, uh, the nuances and specific specifics of that, that group. Can you give any examples of where that kind of deep diving into anomalies changed the, the course of how the product was designed? What's interesting is that if you go back kind of in history, like we've always kind of uh, approached things from this, like get a broad sample, you know, get the whole bell curve and see what happens. And you're trying to solve for most of the problems that most people have. And as I think that the tech industry has really grown up over the past you know, 20, 30, 40 years, all of a sudden, like the default 
is getting better all the time. Like this, the problems that were, that were coming up when, uh, as an example, Alan Cooper wrote The Inmates Are Running the Asylum in 1998. And that book is one of the first books that pinpointed, and it was written by yeah, Alan Cooper from Microsoft, uh, looking at this problem of developers trying to understand people that they're designing for and developing solutions for. And before that, people were, the developers were just developing the solutions for themselves. And so by this focus on trying to understand who the person is that's using it, and that's actually, I think, the first use of personas, which is really fascinating because personas are also kind of this amalgam person uh, that we create as an example person that can be you know, the, the, the user for your particular product. Um, so that focus has always been just try to like understand like who people are in general. Now, as we've evolved in, as an industry, I think that the baseline has risen significantly. So we're basically creating like pretty usable products most of the time, but it means that it gives us the opportunity to dig in a little bit more to these separate audiences. And in terms of inclusive design, it can actually be in many different directions. Like I'm using the queer community as an example because I'm a queer individual, but we could also talk about the Latino community or the black community or any of the international communities. People in other countries that speak other languages that might try to use your product as well. And so, and that's, that's a, a really good example of like, if you have a product in the USA and you say, let's release this in France, in Brazil, in Indonesia, there are gonna be cultural nuances that come up in that research that are really barriers to using that product because people in Brazil don't think the way that people in the USA do, similar to, uh, France, Germany, um, the UK, Indonesia, like these are all different perspectives in the world. And as we start growing and building more global products, it means that we have to understand these cultural and global nuances a lot more. The one example that I kind of always go back to is uh, a friend of mine that or was involved in machine learning software that, that was aimed at uh, recognizing patterns and designers, but the data that it was fed was basically only American designers. When it was shown African designers and African prints, it, it couldn't categorize them because it just did not, had not had that data. That was a blind spot that they had that they realized that there are more perspectives than the ones that they see every day. Yeah, and a, and a related example to that too is when you're collecting voice data and it might not recognize someone with an accent. Um, and that's a, a place where and once you start collecting the data, you start seeing the holes and that's where it, it can really come in and, and help. And I think that when you're doing inclusive design, it's something that you're doing all the time. It's not that you're doing a study and all of a sudden it changes the entire product direction and then it like pivots massively. Like it's not, that's not how it works. If you're doing it right, you should be doing it all the time. And you're constantly making these little shifts. Um, there's this great example that I heard recently about autopilot. So if we think about like when you as a human, like you get up and you kind of, you're on autopilot, you do whatever it is in your morning routine, you're on autopilot and you just kind of like act without thinking. And the way that an autopilot works in an airplane is actually the opposite of that. It's not something that you does, does something without thinking about it. It's actually constantly making micro adjustments. And so that idea I think really applies well to inclusive design and, and product design in, in general because it's not about doing something and without thinking about it. It's about thinking intently about it, setting the goal 
And then anytime you start going astray saying, oh, oh, let's go back to that goal. We know that this is still the right goal. But then you might learn that the goal is needs to be tweaked and then you tweak it. And then you start going a slightly different direction, but you keep moving towards that. What you're saying is it's, it, it's not that it's a completely different process of design, but it's something that you sort of implement into your existing processes. So for, let's say the product designers out there that might be listening, what, how would you recommend to sort of include this into their existing processes? Like, is there any, is there any kind of guidelines or rules of thumb that you could, you could give to, to be more uh, intentional about it being inclusive in their design? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to just start small. And it, it's not about like boiling the ocean. It's really about starting somewhere and learning something because the process of research and design is not one and done. It's constantly evolving and shifting and we always add new knowledge to whatever we know. And what's beautiful about the process is that we can add knowledge from lots of different data sources. And so as a good product designer, you should be talking to your data scientist, your PM, your marketing person and your user researcher, because all of these people are gonna have access to different types of data that are gonna help inform the problem and, and what you can understand about the audience that you're trying to solve it for and the way that they evaluate the solution that you're building. And so it's really about starting somewhere, learning something, and then digging in when you find something interesting. Now you mentioned earlier that you mostly use qualitative data. Are there cases where there's any kind of more quantitative studies that you do that is based on more statistical learning? Can you touch on the difference between those two approaches? I also I, I'm a qualitative researcher, but I'm uh, educated enough in stats that I can be dangerous. <laughs> uh, although you don't want me running your your tests uh, okay. personally, uh, so that's uh, that's kind of where where I sit in in, in the spectrum. And I'm um, on the I'm a, on the, on the complementary side that I'm I'm come from the quantitative side, but it always fascinates me because I think that you get a a complementary set of insights looking qualitatively. Absolutely. It's, it's completely complementary because what's fascinating about it is that because qualitative and quantitative data answer different questions, we can use them to triangulate what's really going on. Because if you only have one perspective from one type of data, that's your, your, that's your worldview, that's your mental model of whatever it is is true for, for your product and for your user. But as you start expanding that by getting complementary data sets that are answering slightly different questions in different ways, suddenly you're, you're able to really do something new. We're actually, as uh, our company is, is creating this new product right now uh, that we're calling hybrid cultural immersion. And it's this mix uh, because over the past several years, as we've like learned you know, collectively how to do lots more things remotely, and that can be quantitative and qualitative. It could be a survey. It can be a, a remote in-depth interview. Um, it could be a diary study. We've learned all of these, these new tools as, as researchers over the past several years. And now as people are moving to back to in-person research again, we're seeing these, these major differences. But what's really exciting is that we can actually take both because from a quantitative perspective, when you're doing qualitative research, you're looking at a small sample in one city. And so if you're trying to understand people in Brazil and you decide to go to Sao Paulo and you understand people in Sao Paulo, 
well, okay, but that's one city. Brazil is big. Brazil is actually the size of the U.S. It's like saying I, I can understand the entire U.S. population by going to New York, L.A., or San Francisco. And so what's amazing is that you can actually start doing quantitative research, both kind of qualitative and quantitative, remotely, and get a broader sample across the entire market, and then also go in person and get a sample of in-person kind of qualitative research as well, because this triangulates in lots of different ways. And that allows you to have a, a stronger uh, signal when it comes to the triangulation of what's really going on for people. Yeah, I always advocate for that to myself in, in advertising and digital advertising. What we see, you know, you've got your quantitative research, which is all about the numbers and, and scale. And mostly it's, it's observable data. It's what people are doing that you can observe from the data. And, you know, you look at terabytes of data and you extract statistical signals from it and say, you know, there's a lot of correlation between yeah. different things. What is very, very hard to understand from it, though, is causation. Like, what is the intent behind it? What caused them to do something? You can kind of infer it. You can kind of say, you know what, I see enough of this pattern and, and, and the order of things that are happening that I can kind of, you know, as, use that as a proxy and kind of fill in the gaps. But you don't really know what the thought is and what their intent is behind the reasoning of those actions. Whereas... On the qualitative side, which like you said, it's a survey of 50 people, the scale is much smaller. You can't necessarily assume uh, statistically significant patterns, but you can get deeper and understand more about people's intent. It's self-reported, they answer. And so that leads to another issue of, you know, are they being honest with you? Are they being honest with themselves? Um, are they answering <laughs> the way that they would like their life to be? One, and, and back in the day, we did this thing about just seeing people's movement to and from the gym and in the new year. And there was some survey about how many times a week they uh, eat uh, fast food that kind of tied into that. But it's like, you know, are you answering honestly or are you answering what you would like it to be? I was oh, only like once a week, but you know, that's more kind of where they would like to be. Having both of those different perspectives coming at it from both of those directions really does offer a sort of complementary view. And one fills in the holes of the other. I think it's a really great combination of data to work with. And, and certainly, like you said, in product design, in order to be able to be inclusive and to keep that in mind, I think it's great to have those different ways of looking at it. Yeah, I and I... And what I love too is that this, this kind of aspirational aspect of like, are people being <laughs> honest with themselves or at all? And what's interesting is that I've, I've done studies and qualitatively, like when you're there next to the person and having a conversation, you can kind of catch them on it because they'll say that. And then you kind of dig in and you kind of dig in from another angle. And all of a sudden it's like, but you said this earlier, like, tell me what's true. Right. These two things don't match up together. Like, which one is true, and how does this make how does this work for you? Um, and and you know, people like can you know you can catch them in it, which is it's interesting and fun in its own way. People always want to please you, and so the, as a qualitative researcher, we're we're constantly trying to understand what is true without the them thinking that they're trying to please us by liking the product that we're testing, but we're not actually testing the like them or what they think about it. We just care about what they actually care about. 
Um, and so it's, it's this interesting little kind of like psychological dance that we play around getting the feedback that we need in order to kind of understand what's really going on. Yeah, I think that's a great point. There's really both a science and an art to each yeah. of these approaches and really being able to cut through the inherent bias that is going to be in each of these data sets, whether it's from the quantitative side where you don't have, you know, you don't realize that maybe you don't have certain groups are presented or you're, you're looking at a certain slice of data that you don't realize that it is heavy on something, maybe age-wise or something. And then you see conclusions, you draw them and they're actually, there's some bias that led to that versus the qualitative side, like you said, where, you know, people may, may be more aspirational in the way that they answer and not necessarily based on true life. Yeah. And I think is, as long as you're aware of the biases that exist in whatever data set or data type that you're working with, you can create conclusions right. knowing what the, what the inherent biases are. And that's good because you should understand like, what are the strengths and weaknesses of each approach and each data type? Because that's where we get into problems when people are misinterpreting data in such a way that they're uh, like applying the measuring stick of one type of data to another type of data and saying like, oh, this can't be true because of this, but like actually that it's not the same thing. But like as practitioners, we know what we can say and what we cannot say with data. Yeah, and sometimes they may appear to contradict each other, but you have to be careful in understanding what questions they're asking, which are could be a little bit different. And that is why you may see different answers and they don't necessarily, it's not necessarily a contradiction, it just shows different aspects of the behavior of the, of the group, um, et cetera. So it always is very challenging. And, I, and that's what I think makes it so interesting to understand the, the, the pull out narratives and data stories from this data. Um, I have a great example, if I can just share really quick. Um, if you look at self-reported data, maybe we ask people to rate something on a one to seven scale. If, if you're taking an average, which you know is, is, is problematic when it's a small sample, but can be helpful to kind of like look at like what's going on in terms of the, the frequency of distribution of different ratings. If everyone is rating your product at a seven out of seven, being like extremely satisfied, great, that's wonderful. They, they love your product. If it's all at one, okay, great, they hate it. And we can learn something about that and we can do something with that. But whenever it averages at the four, all of a sudden you have this really interesting data point to, to kind of try to make sense of because that could be like half of the people rated at one, half people rated at seven and it averaged at four. Or it could just be that everyone rated it as a four, which means that it's actually meh, which means it's, you know, there's a different problem. And so I think that that's such a unique case. And whenever you're finding these discrepancies, the, the more that you dig in and the more that you try to make sense of it, the better it is to finding what that solution is. Yeah, that is a very good point. So I'm going to ask you a question that I think uh, the answer, it might be pretty obvious, but let's assume that you're being cognizant uh, about being inclusive in your design. Is it enough to do research about the different user groups and implement it? And how important is it to have those groups actually represented in your team on your side in the, in the workforce? There's this, um, this phrase, nothing about us without us. And it initially came from 
the disabled community when people were making designs for disabled people, but without including them in the process. And how can we do that? Like it's, it's not something that, that, that we have the ability to do. It's like, if I were to try to say, I know what's best for the, uh, I'm, a, I'm a white male. So if I say, I know what's best for black females, all of a sudden, like, how can I do that? Like, mm-hmm. I don't have that experience. Um, and so it's really important to make sure that as we are doing research with whatever community that it is, that we're actually doing research with people in that community and through inclusive design, or even, even more so through participatory design, it's actually bringing those people in to create those solutions together because I'm not always gonna see what they see. And that's the whole point Absolutely. because whatever our perspectives are, it's just whatever our, our own worldview is. Um, but the more that we bring in people from, with the particular perspective we're looking for, the better the, the output's gonna be. And if we ha- bring those people in onto our product teams as well, then it actually helps uh, create a more inclusive product. I have another uh, paper that we wrote, uh, which I can, I can send you, um, just about the ROI of inclusive design. And there are so many articles and statistics uh, about how much it actually helps the product by having a diverse team build the product. And so the more that you have diversity internally within your company, the more inclusive and diverse you're going to have a product that's going to appeal to a broader audience. Amen to that. Definitely absolutely agree with that. With Amplinate being a company that consults and and, and helps uh, companies create inclusive design, do you find that you ever um, have to have difficult conversations with the organization or to convince stakeholders of the importance of designing for inclusivity? Or do you feel that it is kind of being talked about more now and, and, and accepted? What I'm seeing, and, and this just, just from, from my vantage point, there are more of these conversations that are happening. By the time that, that we're talking to a client about a project, it's already kind of had the, uh, the discussions happening. So our role is more to help inform the discussion and act as a guide to our clients as they're working with their stakeholders in order to make sure that they have the data that supports the perspective of how to like change the product for the better for whatever this audience is. I think that that changes slightly, you know, when you're internal to a company and you're trying to make, make the case for it. Um, because that there's a lot of legwork in terms of talking about what you're doing and why as a researcher or how your design is supporting this particular audience. And so there's a lot of work that happens there. And having come from internally in, a, in as at Microsoft for many years, um, I understand how that process works. So from our perspective, we're just trying to support our clients through that process as well and give them the data that they need in order to continue telling the story of how their users are and their audience are using their product and what we can do to make it better. Lastly, is there any kind of new trends in the industry or in your area of focus that you're excited about? Like what is next in the future for inclusive design? I think it's it's this new uh, realm of the hybrid because post COVID, we are like starting to do research again and in person. And I'm just so excited that we're able to do that again. There's basically been like, you know, three years 
of no in-person ethnographic research. That means that people's lives have changed. Their relationship to working has changed. Their relationship to their families and the way that they work at home has also changed. And we haven't been there to see it. We didn't see the process as it came except through the, the Zoom window. And now we're at the point where we can actually start seeing the impacts in people's physical spaces, in people's mental spaces and psychological spaces and workspaces of what's been happening these last few years. And I think that that's gonna be really exciting to, to continue to start seeing more and more of because as the pendulum has gone from completely on remote research, I think it's gonna you know, swing back a little bit just as the remote working is happening. We went from like, everyone's working remotely to a lot of people are trying to go back into the office, but most people are in this hybrid kind of state in the middle. I think that's the, the future for uh, user experience, research design and inclusive design included. We're gonna be in this middle state where we kind of do a little bit of both, but let's take the, both, the best of both worlds and put them together to create something better. Yeah, that will be really interesting because we definitely are in new sort of uncharted territory that we never thought we'd be in. That's really, really interesting. All right. Well, thank you, Josh. I really, really appreciate your time. This has been a very fascinating conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to now at gmail.com. That's who's your data now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>